My father repeatedly told, after first shot, we will lose the control. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 26 of Cold War Conversations in partnership with the Cold War Museum. This is part two of my conversation with Professor Sergei Khrushchev, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, who led the Soviet Union from 1953 to 1964. Before we start, I would again like to thank all those who are supporting the podcast with monthly pledges and donations, especially our latest Patreons, Lee David McLaughlin and Anthony Gifford. If you would like to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras, go to our website at coldwarconversations.com and click on the support the podcast menu option. In part two of this interview, we gain insight into Soviet thinking around the Cuban Missile Crisis. We hear about the Soviet view of the building of the Berlin Wall along with the 1961 Berlin crisis when Soviet and American tanks were toe-to-toe at Checkpoint Charlie. And lastly, we hear about Nikita Khrushchev's fall from power. If you are a member of our Cold War Conversations Facebook discussion group, you would have had the opportunity to provide questions for Professor Khrushchev. I've tried to include as many of these as I can, but apologies in advance if your questions didn't make the final cut. I want to talk about the 1960 U2 incident. Can you tell me what you knew about that at the time? I knew everything because at that time I worked in the Missile Design Bureau and we designed the cruise missiles at that time and the spacecrafts. So I was close to the military, and I knew that they flew over our territory first in April, then in May, and we waited when when few be shot. So when on the May first, my father went downstairs. He told, "Yeah, they flew second time over, and in the same area in the Central Asia." And I, I asked, "Would they shoot him?" And he answered me. It is a silly question. If they be able, they will do it. And then it was the May Day celebration, the parade, and all these people who were standing around the mausoleum, just chatting with each other because all of the people who was in this business knew this, and I tried to find out where it's flying, how it's flying. And then we saw the commander of the air defense who is walking to the mausoleum, toward mausoleum, mm-hmm. and then he stand up and it was such a uh, wave of whispering, they did it. So we were very happy that we were able to shoot it. What do you remember about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Cuba was nothing for the Soviet Union at that time. We know nothing about this. 
Soviet Union had the embassy in Gavana, but it was <coughs> locked. And no personnel there because they don't want to spend money there. And then it was the revolution. And we think that we have to support the revolution to help people who fighting for the freedom. But Fidel Castro didn't want our support. First he traveled to, to Washington DC. The revolution was on the January, or they, they took the Havana on the January 1st, 1959, and he went to visit Washington DC and American president on April 23rd. But the Eisenhower didn't want to speak with him because he didn't look at him as the real leader and the politicians who have to be taken into account. And uh, he just humiliated him through all the things. And they wanted to overthrow him because uh, Americans felt themselves much more comfortable dealing with corrupt Batista, the dictator, than the new uh, democracy-oriented people, because of course Castro at the time was represented the democratic wing of the political movement in Cuba. Mm. And uh, so Castro was trying to find out what they have to do, and the law of the Cold War was uh, that you have to help any enemy of your enemy, if you can be able to do so. Soviet Union started to to help uh, Cuba and supply them with weapons and all other things, and very soon Cubans became the heroes to the, all the Soviet people, especially for the youth like we, it was young people who just confronted this Galeav, the Americans, Mm-hmm. And they won. But my father was very cautious, saying that when I tell him, let's invite Cuba in the Warsaw block, because then we will protect them by all our nuclear forces. And he told, you see, they're very far from us. We have no communication. And we, we even don't know who is the customer. Maybe we'll start war against the United States if they will invade Cuba, and the Castro will shake hands with American generals. But everything changed after the Bay of Peace, uh, the year, uh, previous year, 1961. Mm. American invaded, and, and we think that it was inevitably Castro will defeat it, but he won. And during this fighting, he proclaimed that now he is officially joined Soviet bloc. And any obligation of the superpower, if you want to be the superpower, to protect all your clients and all your allies. So, my father became the hostage of this, and he had to do something to protect the Cuba. And he, and he told me that we couldn't protect them diplomatically because Americans will not listen us in the Security Council. We can't protect them using conventional forces because America control all communication. And so, sooner or later, uh, 
or later they will exhaust it. So we have to do something that will shock Americans to show them that we are serious, don't invade Cuba. So he decided to send their missiles as a diplomatic signal, don't invade Cuba, we are serious. And this has created the psychological crisis of the United States, because of course Soviet Union <coughs> did not think about changing balance of power, it was impossible at that time, or just infiltrated in this uh, Western Hemisphere that is also was not on our agenda at that time. It was just the signal. The Americans, different from us, Europeans, they lived all the time protected by the two oceans. So they are very strong. They are like tigers which grew up in the zoo, the strongest predator of the world, but if you send them to the jungle, they will be scared about every mice or cat there. For the same with Americans. And their first psychological crisis was the Sputnik, because they told, oh, now they will be able to uh, attack us by the missile, and it was very difficult to assist how to convince them, no, we are much more powerful, we are safe, don't worry, and still they didn't believe him. The second was the Cuban Missile Crisis, Americans started this panic that if these missiles will be ready, Soviets will launch them. And it has no logic behind it, because why <coughs> somebody will uh, launch missiles from Cuba and didn't launch them from Siberia. It was difference only 20 minutes in the delivery time. If it is this psychological crisis, it is madness. You cannot explain people, don't worry, nothing will happen. It was very difficult to the, to the, my father, together with President Kennedy, to resume this crisis. But of course, Kennedy was a balanced politician and from the very beginning, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. He rejected the military invasion, and it was wise because Soviet Union had 94 tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba, which Americans did not know, and it would destroy all invading forces, and he preferred to start negotiations from the first day. They started negotiations, and in three, four days, they came to conclusion that the best for the Boers will be if America will not invade Cuba and return to this, Soviet Union 
we will take the missiles out. Both sides will be satisfied. Not fully satisfied, but like any enemy, they will be satisfied. So it was victory on the both sides, and the victory on the, for the, all the people in the world, because during such psychological crisis, <coughs> Americans became absolutely unpredictable. It was possible that somebody can push the button and start the war. That time communication was very weak, and it was many of these uh, decision-making was given to the lower-level commanders. And my father repeatedly told, after first shot, we will lose the control. It will be military, and it will go in some very different direction and very dangerous. So why they came to conclusion even on sometime on Wednesday or Thursday that they have this mutual understanding. I'm not invading you by taking missiles out. And then at last they make this official decision of this on Sunday. So it took only one week to resolve this crisis. Of course, later American propaganda presented it the huge American victory, and then they show this iron fist to Khrushchev. Khrushchev was scared, withdraw his missiles, and many all these things. Can we talk about East Germany and specifically Berlin and the building of the Berlin Wall? My father believed that the Soviet economic system can be more effective than the Western economic system. If, of course, we reform them, and he presented many domestic reforms, decentralizing this economy, but it's a very different subject. What was his uh, uh, primary goal on all these 10 years when he was in power? And through this, the Germany, as one of the most developed countries of the Soviet bloc, have to be just example of this success. And then it was this very bleak results that uh, they didn't work very well. And Ulbricht didn't know how to do it. My father tried to push him in the reformation, but still he more was interested in the Soviet uh, economical support than trying to reform his own economy. And through this, of course, and the propaganda that exists on both sides, the Eastern Germans were attracted by the better life of the West. So the most uh, educated people, like doctors, engineers, after graduation of the East, go to the West. There mm. was no border at that time. You could just walk freely like now in the European Union. Ulbricht applied to my father, we have to do something with this. And my father told, yes, you have to do, you have to make life in GDR better. So then you will, uh, the Western Germans will come to live in your country, then your people will go there. But it never happened, and they Ulbrich insisted that we have to stop this flow, just interrupted this. And my father was again this and again this. And at last, in 1961, 
it was the panic in the German leadership that we were told if we will not stop them and we have to build some type of defense, we will collapse. And my okay. father looked there around and he just, he understood, of course, the Soviet intelligence and military and economy told, yes, it is difficult situation. And the Ulrich told, I promise you, if we'll stop this flow, we're just pumping all these uh, most uh, effective people out of GDR in two, three years, we will be in the much better position. And my father at last told, yes, I will agree. Plus, we have to do it, but you will do it, not we. And we will stand behind you, and it will be not my decision. So, they did, it was this exchange of communication in June and July, and in August, it was the uh, meeting of the leaders of the all Warsaw Pact leaders, where the Ulbricht made this presentation, and they decided that they will build the fence, and they build this fence that looks will be temporary. But when they stop this flow of the people, Ulbricht also did nothing, which was made my father even more unsatisfied, because we built the fence, what we did, did what you asked, us, help you with all these things, and now it is still these people is going out and not and, and not going in. And at that time I remember in nineteen sixty three Wilbricht applied to my Stalin or my father that GDR building the fishing ships for the Soviet Union and that the price is unfair for the Germany because it was not profitable. And they have to rise the price. And my father answered him, my dear friend, Walter, we built the same ships. Poles built the same ship for us. You built these ships for us, the same project. And the West Germans did this. And it is profitable to West Germany, not profitable to you. And they will not, of course, build capitalists that will be no profit. So if it is not profitable to you, that means that you are doomed with this. Your economy is not effective. Of course, my father at that time planning to make new economical reform in the Soviet Union. And he started to think about the future of the Germany. Not, of course, unification, but the future. And in 1964, he sent the editor of the newspaper, and his son-in-law, Mr. Andrew Bay, to visit Germany. And it was the beginning of the, some changing relations between Western Germany and the Soviet Union. But because the, my father was soon ousted of power, Everything was interrupted, and then it was a new wave of the new relations with Germany only started two, three years later. So, any wall is the decision 
that can treat the symptoms, not the disease. It was yes. there because you have to change the economy, the atmosphere in the country and the East Germany to make it more attractive. The same as uh, Israel wall did not change anything in the hostility there and the Great American Wall with Mexico also will not change. It was stopped this flow for some period of time, but in each of these cases, it requires some better understanding of the nature of the events and make more fundamental changes. Later on in 1961, there's the confrontation at Checkpoint Charlie between Soviet and American tanks. Can you tell me anything about that? Oh, at Checkpoint Charlie, it was the small episode in which really leadership was not involved. Because for Americans, building war, it was a relief. Because all the time is tension around all the things between two countries and the Soviet Union. And my father, who wanted to be recognized as equal, and you know that Americans don't want to recognize anybody as equal, insisted. <laughs> so it was true. Berlin crisis, it was around this, that Soviet Union want Americans to accept the GDR in the country, and the Americans told no. So it was tension, tension here, tension there. Now they have the border. So the Americans think it will be much easier now to deal with the Soviet Union around the Germany. And it was true. But at the same time, of course, it was the lower level there. And the local commander, it was the General Clare, I think, at that time. And because Soviets insisted that Americans have to show their paper, their passports, to the GDR uh, border guards. And the Americans told, no, we don't know what it means GDR. We'll show this to the Soviets, not to anybody else. Mm -hmm. It was one day when they tried to... Uh, go through this border, and it was no restriction to go, to go. You have full freedom to move from West Germany to East Germany, any uh, Americans, British or French, the same as the Soviets move from the East Germany to the West Germany without any special permissions. But they don't want to show this to the GDI and the Russia told no, you have to show, we insisted. It was some tension. So they decided, the General Clay, that next time when the Soviets do the same, they will just use the bulldozers, which will be made on the tanks, to move out of all these checkpoints and open the free road to the East. east. It was going to be very dangerous, but we were lucky. The, the Soviet, I don't know, maybe GDI intelligence knew them before, and they said it, said it to my father. <clears throat> so he told, allow them to do it, send them, and then when they come there and send their tanks, 
we have to keep our tanks in the side streets. And if we come close to the checkpoint, we will show our tanks. And it was just this happened. And then the Soviets did not insist at that time that they have to show their papers to the GDR border guards. They checked their papers and thought, you may go. And these Americans went there, and the American tanks standing there, because they don't want to show their back. And the Soviet tanks stand there, just in front of them, hour after hour, hour after hour. And then later, late in the evening, my father called the commander, Soviet commander, told, I know how to resolve this crisis. Give the order, your tanks to move in the side streets, and I swear, in 15 minutes there will be no American there. And the tanks move back at the side streets, and then Americans turn around their tanks, and they moved back. So it was, at that time, it was just more performance than the real crisis, because it was good when you prepared, prepared what can happen. I'd like to talk a little bit about the ousting of your father. Did he give you any indication as to the circumstances around this? No, he didn't tell me circumstances, but he told one thing. Now I'm out of power. If I did only one thing on my life, that I changed the system, that they could remove the person, the leader from the highest position, just from simple voting, without any blood, I will think that I don't live my life for nothing. So it was, of course, unpleasant to him, but at that time he believed that his successor will follow his reforms policy and they just removed him. So the worst was later when they tried to stop all this reformation. And here my father believed that he used his 10 years and then he, that he had to retire. So he told that I will introduce new constitution, it was new democratic constitution for the Soviet Union that was, the uh, draft was written, the new economic reforms, which also draft was written, uh, with the decentralization of the economy, and then after the next party congress that will have take place in 1965 or 66, I will retire. So he was ready to go out of power. How it was due, of course, it was shock for him. What would you say was your father's greatest legacy? He changed the country. He he turned it from the bloody dictatorship and the monarchy to the more normal state based on the, on the bureaucracy. It was first step to the democracy, but you cannot introduce democracy overnight, like naive Americans believe. Democracy is the changing of the mentality of the people, and it is taking many decades until you will change this mentality. It was very long road of the 
British people to move to the uh, democracy from the first Bill of Rights toward the Constitution. And the first is assembly around the king to the parliament and was the same in the difference between the revolution and the new democracy, but it was first step and it was still now Russia is in transition and this changing are inevitable and my father was the person who initiated all these changes. Well, thank you for that. And Professor Khrushchev, thank you very much for your time well, today. If you really? will be interested, we can speak sometime in the future. Yeah, I, I would. There, there's other things I'd like to talk about, particularly your work with the Soviet space program. But that's for another day. Yeah, another day. Good luck. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. I only had limited time with Professor Khrushchev. However, as you've heard, he's keen to talk further. However, if you can't wait or want to learn more, his book is well worth a read and does give more detail into his father's life. The book is available from our show notes at coldwarconversations.com. Just click on the episodes and show notes option on the homepage. If you like what you are listening to, do join our vibrant Facebook discussion group where we have academics, military veterans, guests and others who live through the Cold War or are fascinated by the subject. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Lastly, do leave reviews with your podcast provider. I'd like to thank Rick Yerkovics and Lucetta18, who have recently left some great five-star reviews on iTunes. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the podcast. It is really appreciated. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.